Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the Scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for March 14th through 20th, 2022. This is covering Genesis chapters 42 to 50. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the Scriptures. Hello, Scriptures. Looking great. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 50 minutes, 48 seconds. Wow. We have not seen a reading time like this all year. Mm-hmm. So what would it be daily? 7 minutes, 15 seconds. Still very doable, but you might need to budget a little more time than you're used to for this week's reading. Here we've got time codes if you want to go through it chapter by chapter or buckle up and we'll talk about them all together. But right before we get started, don't forget that if you're watching the show on YouTube, links from the show and a PDF of all our quotes and graphics, it's located in the description below. We hope that it helps you in your study. Also, please know that there is an audio-only podcast. You can find it by searching for Scripture Gems on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. And if you're already subscribed and listening, you might want to check out the video version of the show on YouTube. Search for the Brother Fulmer channel. Yeah. And one other thing before we start, we've been really enjoying the opportunity to share other resources that can help with your study. And we've suggested this channel in the past. It's called Messages of Christ on YouTube. It's by Daniel Smith. They are fantastic videos. Daniel Smith finds himself involved in all the really cool scripture projects out there. But as we're getting ready to start next week into Exodus, some of the tools that Daniel is putting out to do with the tabernacle and other things around the story and events in Exodus will be a great help to you. So check out his channel and feel free to use those resources in your study. Let's go ahead and get started with Genesis chapter 42. This is a continuation from last week. In the first five verses, Jacob sent his sons to Egypt to buy food so that they could survive the famine. What famine, you might say? Well, remember last week, that was the dream of Pharaoh, that there would be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And because Joseph had interpreted the dream of Pharaoh by the power of God, he was put in charge of preparing the land for the famine. So, the famine's hit. So Jacob sent his sons, all except Benjamin, the youngest, to go to Egypt and get food. Now, he wanted to keep Benjamin at home to keep him safe, according to these first five verses in chapter 42. Let's jump into the chapter in verse 6. And Joseph was the governor over the land, and he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but made himself strange unto them. In other words, they didn't recognize him. Going on. And spake roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew not him. What feelings might you have had if you were Joseph, and you saw your brothers for the first time in over 20 years, especially remembering what they had done to you. And some may wonder why the brothers did not recognize Joseph. The Institute Manual gives this insight. 
It has been 22 years since the sons of Jacob had last seen Joseph, 13 years of slavery and prison for Joseph, seven years of plenty, and two years of famine before Jacob's family was forced to go to Egypt for grain. Joseph was a teenager when his family had last seen him. Now he was a mature, middle-aged man. And even if Joseph still looked very much as he did when he was younger, who would believe that a brother who was sold as a slave to a caravan of Arabians would have become the second most powerful man in Egypt? Going back to the chapter, starting in verse 9, after Joseph saw his brothers bowing before him, he remembered the dreams God had given him. We talked about those in our last lesson. He recognized that these prophetic dreams were being fulfilled. Joseph accused his brothers of being spies. His brothers responded that they had come to buy food and that their father and younger brother had remained in Canaan. Their cry in verse 11, We are true men. In verse 13, And they said, Thy servants are twelve brethren, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. Meaning that one has passed away, referring to Joseph. Joseph put them in prison for three days, and he kept Simeon as a prisoner and instructed the rest of his brothers to prove they were telling the truth by bringing Benjamin to Egypt. So let's look at verse 21. And they said one to another, We are very guilty concerning our brother. Now, this is referring to Joseph. In that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and ye would not hear? Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. This must have been such a strange interaction for Joseph to see in such a raw, personal way how they're dealing with this. Well, and that contributes to the idea that they wouldn't recognize him. For one, he's speaking Egyptian rather than Hebrew. Right. But he understands Hebrew. Of course. He can understand what they're saying. Yeah, well, and you might say, well, you know, what if his servant said, Joseph, Israel's son, And then maybe that would give it away. But you may remember in chapter 41, the previous chapter, Pharaoh gave him a different name, Zaphnath Paaneah. Right. So that's another reason. Boy, it looks a lot like Joseph, but that's Zaphnath Paaneah. So can't be him. And he's the big guy in charge. So not the guy you want to make angry. No. And how closely really are they looking at someone who's that powerful? So what do you see in their response to each other? Why are they still feeling guilty? Remember that guilt accompanies sin, and it can cause us to regret our sins. There's a great quote along those lines from Elder David A. Bednar. This is from the April 2013 General Conference. He says this, All of us have experienced the pain associated with a physical injury or wound. When we are in pain, we typically seek relief and are grateful for the medication and treatments that help to alleviate our suffering. Consider sin as a spiritual wound that causes guilt. Guilt is to our spirit what pain is to our body, a warning of danger and a protection from additional damage. The Savior is often referred to as the great physician. From the atonement of the Savior flows the soothing salve that can heal our spiritual wounds and remove guilt. However, this salve 
can only be applied through the principles of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance, and consistent obedience. The results of sincere repentance are peace of conscience, comfort, and spiritual healing and renewal. So, as we go on, remember that the brothers don't think he knows their language because he's been speaking through a translator, but of course he does. Look at his response to their regret. In verse 24, And he turned himself about from them and wept, and returned to them again and communed with them, and took from them Simeon and bound him before their eyes. Can you see how the turmoil for Joseph It seems that he wants to really know that they've repented, but what he sees so far, and I don't know all of the emotion that's tied up in this, it's overwhelming for him to continue this charade, necessary though it may be. So in the next few verses, after Joseph imprisoned Simeon, he sent the other brothers home with grain. But before they left, he commanded his servants to hide the money his brothers used to purchase the grain in the brothers' sacks of grain. When his brothers later discovered the money in their sacks, they were afraid. When the brothers get home, they explain everything to their father Jacob about how the Lord of the land demanded that they bring Benjamin to Egypt, that Simeon was left behind in prison, and that their money had miraculously been returned to them. Interesting. Let's take a look at Jacob's reaction in verse 36. And Jacob their father said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and ye will take Benjamin away? All these things are against me. And Reuben spake unto his father, saying, Slay my two sons, if I bring him not to thee. Deliver him into my hand, and I will bring him to thee again. And he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If mischief befall him by the way in the which ye go, then shall ye bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. This is the Old Testament narrative at its best, in my view. Mm -hmm. To me, it feels so authentic. This isn't a story about some people. These are real people and ones that we can relate to. You can feel the heartbreak. Remember Rachel, his beloved, has died. And so all he has left to remember, Rachel, is Benjamin. Let's move on to chapter 43. After Jacob's family ran out of food again, which is kind of funny that they would wait that long because Simeon is still stewing in prison in Egypt. (laughs) But I guess he's being fed. So after Jacob's family ran out of food, the brothers are asked to return to Egypt. They explain that they can't go back without Benjamin. So let's pick it up in verse 6. And Israel said, Wherefore dealt ye so ill with me, as to tell the man whether ye had yet a brother? And they said, The man asked us straightly of our state and of our kindred, saying, Is your father yet alive? Have ye another brother? And we told him according to the tenor of these words. Could we certainly know that he would say, Bring your brother down? It's interesting that their father's upset they gave him so much information, but Joseph was asking very specific questions, and I think very sincerely so. And they're right to defend themselves for simply being honest. Right. Well, and Joseph for being very direct. In verse 8, And Judah said unto Israel his father, Send the lad with me, 
And we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. I will be surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. Are you catching any kind of irony? It's Judah who's saying this. You might look back to our previous lesson when we talked about chapter 38. So given that knowledge, after Judah promised to take care of Benjamin, would you trust Judah knowing what we do about him? And yet, Jacob agreed to let Benjamin go with Jacob's other sons to Egypt to buy more food. But he insisted that they bring double money and additional presents. When Joseph saw that his brothers had brought Benjamin with them, he instructed his servants to bring them to Joseph's house and prepare a dinner. The brothers feared that Joseph would put them in bonds because of the money that had been returned to their sacks of grain during their previous visit. Before going in, they explain the miraculous appearance of their money, and they offer their original money and more. Joseph replies, Peace be to you. Fear not. Your God and the God of your father hath given you treasure in your sacks. That's from verse 23. So let's pick up the story in verse 26. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed themselves to him to the earth. And he asked them of their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom ye spake? Is he yet alive? And they answered, Thy servant our father is in good health. He is yet alive. And they bowed down their heads and made obeisance. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother, of whom ye spake unto me? And he said, God be gracious unto thee, my son. And Joseph made haste, for his bowels did yearn upon his brother, and he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there. And he washed his face, and went out, and refrained himself, and said, Set on bread. And they set on for him by himself, and for them by themselves, and for the Egyptians which did eat with him by themselves, because the Egyptians might not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination unto the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men marveled one at another. And he took and sent messes unto them before him. But Benjamin's mess was five times so much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. Now, quick aside, mess would refer to a dish or quantity of food prepared or set on a table at one time. You might know it from the military reference of a mess tent. Or a mess hall, correct. Also, the Institute Manual provides this insight as to why the Egyptians would not eat bread with the Hebrews. Several Egyptian deities were represented by cattle, especially female cattle. Since the Hebrews were herdsmen who slaughtered and ate cattle regardless of sex, this practice would have been viewed by the Egyptians as a terrible abomination. Whatever the reason, Joseph seemed to respect the custom of Egyptians and Hebrews eating separately. And I would add that it was still in his best interest to keep the charade going. And it certainly would have outed him if he did not respect the Egyptian custom. So let's move on then to chapter 44. As his brothers were preparing to return to Canaan the second time, Joseph devised a plan that would prevent them from leaving Egypt. 
Let's take a look in verse 1. And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put every man's money in his sack's mouth, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the sack's mouth of the youngest, and his corn money. And he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away, they and their asses. And when they were gone out of the city, and not yet far off, Joseph said unto his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when thou dost overtake them, say unto them, Wherefore have ye rewarded evil for good? Is not this it in which my Lord drinketh, and whereby indeed he divineth? Ye have done evil in so doing. And he overtook them, and he spake unto them these same words. And they said unto him, Wherefore saith my Lord these words? God forbid that thy servants should do according to this thing. Behold the money which we found in our sacks' mouths, we brought again unto thee out of the land of Canaan. How then should we steal out of thy Lord's house silver or gold? With whomsoever of thy servants it be found, both let him die, and we also will be my Lord's bondsmen. And he said, Now also let it be according unto your words. He with whom it is found shall be my servant, and ye shall be blameless. Then they speedily took down every man his sack to the ground, and opened every man his sack. And he searched, and began at the eldest. Boy, this guy knows how to build suspense. He began at the eldest, and left at the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they rent their clothes, and laid it every man his ass, and returned to the city. And Judah and his brethren came to Joseph's house, for he was yet there, and they fell before him on the ground. Skipping to verse 16. And Judah said, What shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also with whom the cup is found. And he said, God forbid that I should do so. But the man in whose hand the cup is found he shall be my servant, and as for you, get you up in peace unto your father. But this won't do. In the next few verses, Judah told Joseph how worried their father Jacob was about letting his youngest son Benjamin go to Egypt for fear of losing him like he had lost another son, Joseph. In verse 30, Judah explains, Now therefore, when I come to thy servant my father, and the lad be not with us, Seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life, it shall come to pass, when he seeth that the lad is not with us, that he will die. And thy servants shall bring down the gray hairs of thy servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. So now we come to it. Judah has made a covenant. What was Judah willing to do? Let's read on in verse 32. For thy servant became surety for the lad unto my father, saying, If I bring him not unto thee, then I shall bear the blame to my father forever. Now therefore I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of the lad, a bondman to my lord, and let the lad go up with his brethren. For how shall I go up to my father, and the lad be not with me, lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come upon my father? Remember, this is Judah who sold Joseph into slavery. He is now willing to become a slave to save another. Imagine the impact this must have on Joseph. And let's take a look at it as we go into chapter 45. 
in verses 1 through 4. Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him, and he cried, Cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Now how do you think the brothers felt? Compare that with how Joseph felt about the events over these many years. And remember, this had to be extraordinarily shocking to them for another reason that's not really talked about. It's likely that after Joseph sent everyone out, he started speaking to them in Hebrew. Mm. And so that probably already was a little jarring. Right. But for him to say, I'm your brother, the one that you assumed was dead, (laughs) or perhaps at least a slave. Yeah. That had to have been just unbelievable. Well, and you can imagine them looking at him closely for the first time. Right. Let's get Joseph's reaction here in verse 5. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall neither be earing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Haste ye and go up to my father and say unto him, Thus saith thy son Joseph, God hath made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not, and thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen, and thou shalt be near unto me, thou and thy children, and thy children's children, and thy flocks, and thy herds, and all that thou hast. And there will I nourish thee. For yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household, and all that thou hast, come to poverty." Now, that's an important thing to bear in mind. We talked about how funny it was that the brothers went to Egypt to buy food, came back, and then Simeon's just in jail, and then they come back again. It's certainly possible that the amount of food that they bought the first time was based on the notion of, well, we're in a famine now, but maybe in a few months it'll be okay. And it wasn't. Right. Good point. We can easily see in this story that if we are faithful God can direct our lives and help us make trials become blessings for ourselves and others. But I also learned that God even uses people who behave badly, who are not at their best, to be part of his work. That should be a hopeful message for all of us. So let's go on in verse 14. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brethren and wept upon them, and after that his brethren talked with him. Now, how might this story have been different if Joseph was unwilling to forgive his brothers? What was it 
that helped him have the attitude that he did? And what can we do to instill an eternal perspective in our outlook as we go through hardships? One more aside, remember that in our last lesson we mentioned that Joseph's life in some ways was reminiscent of the Savior's? The Institute Manual provides this summary for comparison. Number one, Joseph was the favored son of his father. So was Jesus. Number two, Joseph was rejected by his brothers, the Israelites, as was Jesus. Three, Joseph was sold by his brothers into the hands of the Gentiles, just as Jesus was. Number four, Judah, the head of the tribe of Judah, proposed the sale of Joseph. Certain leaders of the Jews in Jesus' day turned Jesus over to the Romans. Judas, the Greek spelling of Judah, was the one who actually sold Jesus. Number five, Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver, the price of a slave his age. Christ was sold for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave his age. Six, in their very attempt to destroy Joseph, his brothers actually set up the conditions that would bring about their eventual temporal salvation. That is, Joseph, by virtue of being sold, would become their deliverer. Jesus, by his being given into the hands of the Gentiles, was crucified and completed the atoning sacrifice, becoming the deliverer for all mankind. 7. Joseph began his mission of preparing salvation for Israel at age 30, just as Jesus began his ministry of preparing salvation for the world at age 30. 8. When Joseph was finally raised to his exalted position in Egypt, all bowed the knee to him. All will eventually bow the knee to Jesus. 9. Joseph provided bread for Israel and saved them from death, all without cost. Jesus, the bread of life, did the same for all men. That is really great. What wonderful insights. On the list that you can see in the Institute Manual or in our presentation on the slides there, check out those scripture references for each of those segments, each of those comparisons. I think you'll find it very enriching. Now, in the remaining verses, the Pharaoh hears that Joseph's brothers are in town and is well pleased. It would seem that Joseph never mentioned how he got to Egypt in the first place. <laughs> Pharaoh tells Joseph to tell his brothers to go home to Canaan and bring their whole family, and they will have, quote, the good of the land of Egypt and eat the fat of the land, in verse 18. The brothers are outfitted with extra wagons so they can transport everyone back to Egypt. Let's take a look at verse 25. And they went up out of Egypt and came into the land of Canaan unto Jacob their father and told him, saying, Joseph is yet alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. Can you imagine <laughs> how weird that sentence must have been coming from them? Going on. And Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. And they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him... The spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. Hmm. That is so touching, and I really enjoy that. Let's move on to chapter 46. 
The first several verses of this chapter, Jacob took all his family and their possessions and traveled to Egypt. On the way, the Lord spoke to Jacob in a vision and told him not to fear settling his family in Egypt because he would be with him and would make of him a great nation. Again, reminding him of the covenant. Verse 29, And Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to meet Israel his father, to Goshen, and presented himself unto him. And he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said unto Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen thy face, because thou art yet alive. So wonderful. In verses 6 through 27 of chapter 46, it contains an interesting puzzle. The numbers that it lists as it lists all the people that are coming to Egypt, the numbers don't quite add up. Remember that last week we talked a bit about some of the traditions around Joseph's wife, Asenath. Some early Jewish traditions held that she was originally the daughter of Leah's daughter, Dinah, by Shechem, but left by Jacob at the wall of Egypt and found and raised by Potipharah, priest of On. Well, these verses may offer some biblical backing that something like that may have happened. This exploration was described by John Pratt in an article a long time ago. We'll put a link in the description if you want to read all of his thoughts on this. But let me sum up some things in these verses. Let's take a look at them. Now, I know this is going to seem very numbery, but there's a purpose for it. Notice in verse 7 that all his seed brought he with him into Egypt. So now it gives the count. It doesn't count the wives, but it counts the sons and their children. For example, in verse 8, it gives Reuben and his descendants, and there's five people there. And then Simeon and his descendants, there's seven people. Levi, in verse 11, there's four. And then in verse 12, you have to be careful counting that because Ur and Onan died. It mentions that at the end of the verse. So if you count Judah's descendants, there's only six that would be coming into Egypt. And then Issachar has five. And in verse 14, Zebulun has four, and then Dinah in verse 15. And then it tallies it all up and it says 33. But if you tally this up, you'll see it's not 33, it's 32. So who's missing? This has been an inconsistency that's been known for a very long time. If we go on and look at the other wives and their children, we see in verse 18 that Zilpah her descendants are 16, and then we have Rachel's descendants. They're tallied in verse 22. There's 14 of those, and then seven for Bilhah. And then it tallies them all up and says that there's three score and six, meaning 66. Well, okay. And he's just talking there about those that are coming into Egypt. Verse 27 gives us those who are already in Egypt. And look at the number count here. Joseph and his two sons. And then it says, for a total of 70. Well, wait a minute. If you have 66 and you add Joseph and his two sons, again, we're missing somebody. So the short version of all of this is that in keeping with the traditions we talked about last time, if Azanath is truly a descendant of Jacob through Leah and that she had by some means come into Egypt earlier, she would be counted as a descendant. And so the numbers would work out then. But it really only works if those traditions about Azanath were true. 
and then Joseph would have married her, and then those numbers all figure out. Anyway, if you're interested in more information about that, check out the link in the description. But I just find it an interesting puzzle. So there's something else that I think was worth bringing that up and thinking about it. Think about your plan of life. What did you plan for your future family, your occupation, your education, or other achievements? Did God alter those plans? If you're a younger listener, look ahead to what you want out of life and now ask, if you were to choose between your plan for your life and what Heavenly Father might have planned for your life, which would you choose? Think about Joseph and Azanath and, you know, everybody else in the story. They couldn't have imagined what would be in store for them. And yet, even though it might have been very challenging at times, think about how God used all of those people to help to bring to pass the preservation of his covenant people through Jacob, through Israel. As Jeffrey R. Holland quoted Neil A. Maxwell in a recent conference, do you want what you want or do you want something better? And also to quote Dr. Jordan Peterson, what's good for you will always be better than what you want. Nice. So as we wrap up the book of Genesis, consider all the different people and their experiences how unexpected their lives were and what blessings God was able to give them because they were willing to let God prevail in their lives. So let's go on to chapter 47. So the Pharaoh commands that Israel and his family settle in the land of Goshen. And if there are those that are particularly good at raising sheep, they should be made responsible for the Pharaoh's sheep. Starting in verse 7. And Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and set him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said unto Jacob, How old art thou? (laughs) And Jacob said unto Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are an hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have the days of the years of my life been, and have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. Now, note the footnote on verse 9b. Jacob is saying that his days were few and unpleasant, and that he hasn't lived as long as his fathers did. Starting in verse 13, Joseph collects money for Pharaoh as people in Egypt and the land of Canaan come to buy food. When their money is exhausted, they trade their cattle, their horses, etc. And when that supply runs out, let's take a look at verse 18. When that year was ended, they came unto him the second year and said unto him, We will not hide it from my Lord, how that our money is spent. My Lord also hath our herds of cattle. There is not aught left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our lands. Wherefore shall we die before thine eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants unto Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land be not desolate. And Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for the Egyptians sold every man his field, because the famine prevailed over them. So the land became Pharaoh's. But what does Joseph do with all these servants and land? Let's go on to verse 23. Then Joseph said unto the people, Behold, I have bought you this day, and your land for Pharaoh. Lo, Here is seed for you, and ye shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass, 
in the increase that ye shall give the fifth part unto Pharaoh, and four parts shall be your own, for seed of the field, and for your food, and for them of your households, and for food for your little ones. And they said, Thou hast saved our lives. Let us find grace in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. So the people work the land, and they pay 20% of their increase to Pharaoh as a tax. And that is evidently a standing law for a time in Egypt, as is described later in the chapter. So now Israel and his family thrive in Goshen. Finally, in the last few verses, we see that Israel is 147 years old. One of his last requests is to be buried in Canaan with his fathers. And that brings us to chapter 48. When Jacob was old, Joseph brought his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to him. Now here, it's important to pay attention to the footnotes. In your appendix on the physical copy or in your study helps in the digital, check the Joseph Smith translation for Genesis chapter 48, verse 5. And now of thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt, before I came unto thee into Egypt, behold, they are mine. And the God of my fathers shall bless them, even as Reuben and Simeon they shall be blessed. For they are mine. Wherefore they shall be called after my name. Therefore they were called Israel. Now you may be familiar with the phrase the twelve tribes of Israel. And you may also now understand that these tribes were the descendants of each of the sons of Jacob. But as we go further into the Old Testament, you may recognize that there are actually 13 tribes. The tribe of Joseph is almost never labeled that way. Instead, Joseph gets two tribes, one for each of his sons, the tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of Ephraim. Here in this verse is where Israel makes that clear. Referring to Manasseh and Ephraim, he says, They are mine and they shall be blessed, even as Reuben and Simeon. Or in other words, they shall receive inheritances just as though they were the sons of Israel, as opposed to his grandsons. Right. So let's go on in the Joseph Smith translation from the appendix. Let's look in verse 7. And Jacob said unto Joseph, When the God of my fathers appeared unto me in Luz, in the land of Canaan, he sware unto me that he would give unto me and unto my seed the land for an everlasting possession. Therefore, O my son, he hath blessed me in raising thee up to be a servant unto me, in saving my house from death, in delivering my people, thy brethren, from famine, which was sore in the land. Wherefore, the God of thy fathers shall bless thee, and the fruit of thy loins, that they shall be blessed above thy brethren and above thy father's house. For thou hast prevailed." And thy father's house hath bowed down unto thee, even as it was shown unto thee before thou wast sold into Egypt by the hands of thy brethren. Wherefore thy brethren shall bow down unto thee from generation to generation unto the fruit of thy loins forever. Well, going back to the Genesis text in the Bible, verse 8, And Israel beheld Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? And Joseph said unto his father, These are my sons, whom God hath given me in this place. And he said, Bring them, I pray thee, unto me, and I will bless them. But going forward, look what happens in verse 13. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's 
left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near unto him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Do you find it strange that Israel would get the firstborn mixed up? What experience does he have with the firstborn not necessarily being the birthright son? (laughs) I mean, think about Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob himself, even Joseph among his 11 brothers. Well, going on in the chapter, starting in verse 17, And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head unto Manasseh's head. And Joseph said unto his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put thy right hand upon his head. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. He also shall become a people, and he shall be great. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, In thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make thee as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Notice that Israel emphasizes who is in charge of such blessings. From the seminary manual, there's a quote from Elder Henry B. Eyring. This is from an Evening with a General Authority broadcast from February 5th, 1993. He says, Once long ago, when I was serving as a bishop, a young woman in my ward came for an interview. We somehow got around to her telling me her feelings about her patriarchal blessing. She said that it depressed her rather than helped her. I must have looked surprised because she explained her feelings by telling me this. She said, that her blessing warned her about sexual immorality, and at least by her report, it did little else. It apparently warned her by describing a situation in which she might find herself, and in which, if she yielded to temptation, she would come to great harm and sorrow. She said something about how that hurt her doubly, not only by being about something so depressing when she needed encouragement, but her social life then was so barren that such a situation could never arise. I remember better the interview I had with her less than a year later. She sobbed for a while, sitting in a chair on the other side of my desk in the bishop's office, and then she blurted out her tragedy and how it happened exactly as she had told me the patriarch so long ago had described. In her little season of doubt that a patriarch could see with inspiration, she had made choices that led to years of sorrow. Hmm. Well, let's move on to chapter 49, starting in verse 1. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. Now, the things that we had just heard from Elder Eyring should give extra weight to these words. May we pay close attention to those whom the Lord would inspire to give counsel to us. Now, this chapter recounts the blessings that Jacob gave to each of his 12 sons. Consider scanning the chapter and marking the names of Jacob's sons so that you quickly can find each son's blessing. But let's take a look at a couple. In verses 8 through 10 is Judah's blessing. It says in verse 8, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. 
thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now there's an interesting play on words if you remember from our last lesson. Look at verse 8. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. You might recall that Judah's name means praise. Nice. From the Institute Manual, we get this message from then-elder Ezra Taft Benson from the December 1976 Enzyme regarding Judah's promise. It says, quote, The great blessing to Judah is that it contemplated the coming of Shiloh, who would gather his people to him. This prophecy concerning Shiloh has been subject to several rabbinic and Christian interpretations and the object of considerable controversy. The interpretation given this passage by the Mormon Church is one based on revelation to modern prophets, not on scholarly commentary. It was revealed to Joseph Smith that Shiloh is the Messiah. End quote. Now, for those who claim to have a family tree line that extends all the way back to Adam, perhaps take a moment to see which tribe of Israel it goes through. If your experience is like mine, most likely it goes through Judah, typically Judah's son Zerah. I'm not saying these family tree lines can't be accurate, but that to me is an indication that someone much later altered whatever they needed to in order to make their line conform. After all, who wouldn't want to descend from the line in which the scepter shall not depart? Why not? Let's take a look at the blessing associated with Joseph in verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him, but his bow abode in strength. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Even by the God of thy father who shall help thee, and by the Almighty who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors, unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. Now there, for those in Utah in particular, the term everlasting hills is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. From the Institute Manual, we get this insight from Orson Pratt from the Journal of Discourses. He says, quote, There are several things to be understood in the prophecy. First, he should become a multitude of nations. We understand what this means. In the second place, his branches should run over the wall. Now, what does this mean? The Lord in ancient times had a meaning for everything. It means that his tribe should become so numerous that they would take up more room than one small inheritance in Canaan, that they would spread out and go to some land at a great distance. Joseph's peculiar blessing, which I have just read to you, 
was that he should enjoy possessions above Jacob's progenitors to the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills. This would seem to indicate a very distant land from Palestine. End quote. The seed of Joseph came to the land of America at the time Lehi and his family departed from the Mediterranean world. The land of America is specifically designated by the Lord as the land reserved for a remnant of the house of Joseph. And a quick aside, Lehi would leave a little over a thousand years after this prophecy was given. Now, from a different talk, we have another quote from Orson Pratt from Journal of Discourses. This is mentioned in the Institute Manual. He says, quote, I suppose that Jacob saw this land as well as Moses, and he designates it a land afar off. The utmost bounds would signify a very distant land. He said this land was over and above what his progenitors gave to him, and he would give it to Joseph. The precious things of heaven were to be given to Joseph on this land. Blessed of the Lord be his land for the precious things of heaven, more precious than the fullness of earth, more precious than the productions of the various climates of the earth, more precious than the grain and the gold and silver of the earth, the precious things of heaven revealed to the people of Joseph on the great land given to them unto the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills, end quote. That sure is a grand prophecy. So why is our lineage so important? While serving in the Young Women's General Presidency, Sister Julie B. Beck explained, In your patriarchal blessing, you are told about your ancestry in the house of Israel. That's your family line. And your family line is sometimes called a tribe. All of the tribes go back to the great patriarch Abraham. Your lineage is important. It means that you are included in the promises given to Abraham, that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. Your lineage is a blood relationship that makes you literally children of the prophets with a noble birthright. That is why we often say that you are youth of the noble birthright and belong to a royal chosen generation. This is from a talk that Sister Beck gave in the April 2006 General Conference. Nice. Let's wrap up this chapter with verse 33. And when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed and yielded up the ghost and was gathered unto his people. Now, we talked about that phrase in a previous lesson, gathered unto his people, is a colloquial way of saying he passed away or he died. So that brings us to Genesis chapter 50, the last chapter of Genesis. Let's look at Joseph's response in verse 1. And Joseph fell upon his father's face and wept upon him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father and the physicians embalmed Israel. Note that in verse 3, the Egyptians mourn for him for 70 days. In verse 12, And his sons did unto him according as he commanded them. For his sons carried him into the land of Canaan, and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, which Abraham bought with the field for a possession of a burying place of Ephron the Hittite before Mamre. So Israel has passed on, now we have some concern among the brothers. Verse 15, 
And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us, and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren, and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, Forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. So you could get a sense of how Joseph is feeling here, but did his brothers really need to worry this much about it? Verse 19, And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now therefore fear ye not. I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. Can you imagine how you might have felt after a response like this? So loving, so kind. When others sin against us, we should leave the judgment to God, as Joseph did. If we let go of past offenses, we can bring peace to ourselves and our families. From the seminary manual, they have a quote from President Dieter F. Uchtdorf. It's an article from the October 2012 Enzyme. He says this, I have discovered one thing that most happy families have in common. They have a way of forgiving and forgetting the imperfections of others and of looking for the good. Those in unhappy families, on the other hand, often find fault, hold grudges, and can't seem to let go of past offenses. It is through our Savior's sacrifice that we can gain exaltation and eternal life. As we accept His ways and overcome our pride by softening our hearts, we can bring reconciliation and forgiveness into our families and our personal lives. God will help us to be more forgiving, to be more willing to walk the second mile, to be first to apologize, even if something wasn't our fault, to lay aside old grudges and nurture them no more. Now, in this coming block, we will reference from more of the Joseph Smith translation. You might find it interesting that the prophet Lehi quoted the words of Joseph in this scripture block to his youngest son, whose name was also Joseph. Take a look in 2 Nephi chapter 3. This would imply that these words were on the plates of brass, even though they didn't make it into our modern book of Genesis. So Joseph lived until he was 110 years old. That's verse 22. But let's look at that Joseph Smith translation, starting in verse 24. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die and go unto my father's. And I go down to my grave with joy. The God of my father Jacob be with you to deliver you out of affliction in the days of your bondage. For the Lord hath visited me, and I have obtained a promise of the Lord, that out of the fruit of my loins the Lord God will raise up a righteous branch out of my loins. And unto thee whom my father Jacob hath named Israel a prophet, not the Messiah who is called Shiloh, And this prophet shall deliver my people out of Egypt in the days of thy bondage. 
So he's talking here about Moses. And what's interesting is that the people are not currently in bondage. Right. So they've got that to look forward to as well. (laughs) Verse 25. And it shall come to pass that they shall be scattered again, and a branch shall be broken off and shall be carried into a far country. Nevertheless, they shall be remembered in the covenants of the Lord when the Messiah cometh. For he shall be made manifest unto them in the latter days, in the spirit of power, and shall bring them out of darkness into light, out of hidden darkness, and out of captivity unto freedom. Now, in order to bring his people out of spiritual darkness and captivity, the Lord raised up a choice seer named Joseph Smith. In the next few verses, look for words and phrases that describe him. Let's go on in verse 26. A seer shall the Lord my God raise up, who shall be a choice seer under the fruit of my loins. Thus saith the Lord God of my fathers unto me, A choice seer will I raise up out of the fruit of thy loins, and he shall be esteemed highly among the fruit of thy loins. And unto him will I give commandment that he shall do a work for the fruit of thy loins, his brethren. And he shall bring them to the knowledge of the covenants which I have made with thy fathers, and he shall do whatsoever work I shall command him. And I will make him great in mine eyes, for he shall do my work, and he shall be great like unto him whom I have said I would raise up unto you, to deliver my people, O house of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. For a seer will I raise up to deliver my people out of the land of Egypt, and he shall be called Moses." And by this name he shall know that he is of thy house. For he shall be nursed by the king's daughter, and shall be called her son. And out of weakness shall he be made strong. In that day when my work shall go forth among all my people, which shall restore them who are of the house of Israel in the last days. And that seer will I bless. And they that seek to destroy him shall be confounded. For this promise I give unto you. For I will remember you from generation to generation, and his name shall be called Joseph, and it shall be after the name of his father, and he shall be like unto you. For the thing which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand shall bring my people unto salvation. Now note that the seer's name shall be called Joseph, and it shall be after the name of his father, Joseph Smith Sr., and he shall be like unto you. How must it have been for Joseph Smith to hear this? Now, it's one thing, certainly, to have a prophecy from Joseph that would be fulfilled over 3,000 years later. But the prophecy of Moses is still quite a ways in the future, over four centuries. But let's continue on with this prophecy. Verse 30, And again, a seer will I raise up out of the fruit of thy loins, and unto him will I give power to bring forth my word unto the seed of thy loins. And not to the bringing forth of my word only, saith the Lord, but to the convincing of them of my word, which shall have already gone forth among them in the last days. Wherefore, the fruit of thy loins shall write, and the fruit of the loins of Judah shall write, and that which shall be written by the fruit of thy loins, and also that which shall be written by the fruit of the loins of Judah, shall grow together unto the confounding of false doctrines, and laying down of contentions, and establishing peace among the fruit of thy loins, and bringing them to a knowledge of their fathers in the latter days, and also to the knowledge of my covenants, saith the Lord. 
Now, isn't that amazing? It's very exciting. We have a quote from Tad R. Callister from the October 2011 General Conference. He sums it up this way. Again and again, the Book of Mormon acts as a confirming, clarifying, unifying witness of the doctrines taught in the Bible, so that there is only one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's it. So when Joseph talks about the writings of the fruit of thy loins, those are the writings of the descendants of Joseph. That's the Book of Mormon. And the writings of the fruit of the loins of Judah, that's the Bible. And they shall grow together for the purposes outlined in that verse 31. Now, this has been an incredible journey through the creation of the world up to this point. But remember, the author is Moses. This is him writing a prelude to his day. Once we get to Exodus next week, that will be Moses's life. And he wants to explain to his readers how we got from the creation of the world to Israel in Egypt. And then he'll take the story from there. And so he spent the time that he spent helping us get to know how the patriarchs came to be, the situations, how we got the tribes of Israel, and all the miracles that the Lord has performed so that Israel can get to where it is in his day. Consider the time comparison for the modern day. Consider somebody today trying to talk about the land of the United States of America. And they start by talking about Christopher Columbus and the Mayflower and so on and so forth. That's about the same time period that we're talking about between Moses and Abraham. Mm. It's about four or five centuries. Well, this is very exciting reading. I love the book of Genesis, and what a wonderful experience to get to share the things that are inspiring and exciting to us, to share those with you. Well, way to go. You made it through the first book of the Torah, the law, the five books of Moses. Fantastic. And we'll be starting book number two in our next lesson. Would you take a minute and go ahead and write in the comment section of the video on YouTube, what's your favorite part of the book of Genesis? What's your favorite gem that you've learned as we've spent these weeks exploring it? Keep reading your scriptures, and we'll look forward to talking to you more about them in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. <laughs>